Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 352 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. And I hope our time together today will help you lead like never before. This episode is brought to you by Glue, G-L-O-O. If you don't know Glue, you got to get to know them because if you've ever wondered who shows up at your website, well, they got a brand new technology that will help you figure out who is watching online. Get more at glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O, insights.com forward slash carry. And by ServeHQ. You can check out ServeHQ's online software subscription tools for churches at servehq.church for free and get a no-obligation 14-day trial account. Well, uh, this episode is different than anyone I've ever brought you, 352 episodes in. It's a really important conversation. This conversation gets into racial justice and racial equality, and it's a compilation of a few interviews I did over at my Church Pulse Weekly podcast that I want to bring to you in an unbroken stream. So talk to a couple of Caucasian leaders, Levi and Jenny Lusco, who uh, have been friends to this podcast in the past, and uh, Levi's actually going to come back this uh, summer and do an, a second interview that is different. Um, but also an interview with Albert Tate and Nicole Martin. And uh, I've known Albert and Nicole. Uh, well, Nicole, I'm really getting to know this year, but Albert I've known for years and uh, spent quite a bit of time with him. And when we sat down and we talked about racial reconciliation, there were things I just didn't even know about Albert and a side of him I haven't seen before. And I always try to listen back to the interviews on this show, you know, just because it's good practice, right? If you're a communicator, you should listen to your messages. Everybody else has to want to get better. I have actually re-listened to these interviews multiple times. Why? Because they rock me to my core. Um, I think 20 years from now, when we look back on this moment and our kids look back on this moment, as crazy as COVID has been, and this summer is like insane for COVID, we'll be remembered more about how we responded to the racial reconciliation conversation than even what we did about COVID, as important as COVID is. So I want to bring you these episodes. If you haven't yet checked out Church Pulse Weekly, we just talk about what's happening with COVID and the crisis and change and the whole deal. You can find that at churchpulseweekly.com. And uh, what I did was I just took three episodes, took all those interviews, put them together in one long form interview. And uh, yeah, so you're going to hear today from Levi and Jenny Lusco. It's fascinating what they say. They are the founding pastors of Fresh Life Church. They meet in four states and also from Albert Tate. He is the co-founder and lead pastor of Fellowship Church, a gospel center, multi-ethnic, intergenerational church in California. And Dr. Nicole Martin, she's the assistant professor of ministry and leadership development at Gordon Carnwell at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Charlotte. She also serves as a church mobilizer with the American Bible Society. So she is also a published author as well. So this is a really raw, open conversation I would encourage you to listen to, and probably if you're like me, listen to again and again. Hey, I've been wanting to share this with you for a little while because I know it's coming. And as you know, COVID-19 has disrupted how people relate with one another and in many ways has accelerated the church's need to engage with people online. But you also know that complicates things, right? A lot of you are very frustrated right now. You don't even know who's watching your church. Like you have no idea. It's like on Sunday, at least you could track it, right? Well, what if there was a new technology 
that allowed you to be able to view who is viewing your website, to know whether they are members or visitors, to see whether they are local or where they're from nationally or around the world, and then can re-engage with them with next steps. If you are curious in that kind of technology, you can learn more at glueinsights.com forward slash carry. Um, that's G-L-O-O insights.com forward slash carry. I'm so excited to bring this to you because that is a pain point a lot of pastors feel. I know that Glue has been working on this technology for a while and guess what? It's public now. So go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. Again, that's G-L-O-O. Anyway, uh, also, <laughs> you're trying to connect with people, right? We've recently partnered with Serve HQ, and if you haven't heard of them yet, you may know them through Trained Up and Huddle Up, which are two services that Serve HQ provides. These are the tools you can use to engage and equip your church no matter where they happen to be. And you know what's happening? National churches are rising out of this, right? You got people who want to serve in their own community. They don't live in your community. So what does ServeHQ offer you? They offer you the ability to send highly engaging mass video text messages and video emails. Your church will always be in the loop. You will not lose touch whether you are closed for public gathering or open. Their safe chat feature allows you to stay in direct contract with your people without worrying about inappropriate private communications. And they launched a brand new feature called follow-ups that's included with all accounts in both Trained Up and Huddle Up. This feature can automate messages, training, and follow-up task assignment for every follow-up workflow in your church. Takes care of a lot of things you used to have to do manually. So it's super simple to use. You can drip emails or text messages from HuddleUp, automatically enroll users in courses on a schedule and trained up, or automatically assign follow-up tasks to staff and volunteers so that they can complete it manually. Curious? You can get a free, no-obligation, 14-day trial account by going to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. Get your free trial account now. So now to today's conversations. Um, these are conversations that I co-hosted with David Kinneman. He's the president of the Barna Group. And uh, David and I are co-hosts of the podcast Church Pulse Weekly. So what you're getting, particularly with Levi and Jenny Lusco, is excerpts from another podcast I host. Okay, so go and check that out if you want the whole thing, including Levi's amazing analogy about this not being a marathon, but a triathlon, which he hints at. Um, but the other voice you hear in the interview is David Kinneman, president of Barna. Uh, everything is available on the Church Pulse Weekly podcast, which you can get anywhere you listen to podcasts or check out more at churchpulseweekly.com. We also, David and I, give research, which we will reference in these interviews uh, every week on that podcast. So you're getting part of the story, but a really important part. If you want the entire context, then you can head on over to Church Pulse Weekly. But in the meantime, here's the race relationship part of the Levi and Jenny Lusco conversation. And I found it uh, very, very uh, powerful and moving and disturbing and all of that. So here we go. What are you doing at Fresh Life Church to address racial reconciliation? Like, what are some of the things that you've done um, together as a church to try to make uh, a difference? Well, it's interesting because um, if you would have asked us this four weeks ago or three weeks, maybe four weeks ago, I would say, well, we're not doing anything specifically. like Beyond when it comes beyond out and our, teaching. Yeah, yeah, what we're reading through the Bible or which you have preached well, on it before. Ironically, like it would come up here and there, but we had planned this fall to have a message on it. 
and um, a whole message on it. And, and we had been working on it because we discovered when we were remodeling our building some documents that had been run in the newspaper 100 years ago. We have a, a historic theater, and our theater had been used for a KKK rally. And apparently there were, at, its, at the height, about 5,100 KKK members in Montana, and they had invited the Grand Imperial Wizard from the Ku Klux, Ku, Ku Klux Klan from Atlanta to come and speak. And he gave an address on the stage I preach on every single week. Wow. So when we discovered that, my blood ran cold, you know, just thinking about that. I looked into this guy, you know, and he had been involved, been involved in lynchings and the largest KKK march in history. And they invited this guy as the guest speaker to come. And the advertisement said, don't miss it, exclamation mark. And I just thought, man, I really need, like we, like I've been intentional to invite people of color to come preach our church and, and that sort of stuff. And then here and there, there's been times when it's been warranted to, to preach about it. You know, Jesus driving out the money changers, for example, which there was a racial component to that. And so it, I've, I've tried to make it an emphasis, but I, I agree with my wife that there was, there was, it was not really something that I felt like um, was even warranted. And I guess that's, that's the thing I've been repenting about is my obliviousness right. to, to this issue. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, bef the week before George Floyd was murdered there, um, I was invited to be a part of this um, group of the Zoom of, of women in leadership and literally talking about this very thing of race and justice within the church. And then that whole week, that, that week, it, it blew up in our faces. And honestly, I've never been so gripped um, by something before and by like this. I mean, obviously we, we helped uh, free sex trafficking and all that kind of stuff and pure water across the world, but there's hasn't ever been anything that has gripped my heart and caused me just personal repentance and, and personal grief grieving with those who have been grieving for the whole of our country, black Americans. But I honestly have just been like refreshed in my own heart of like, this is something that we are going to deal with and pursue. And we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we know that God has, has called us to. And so um, it is, it's very unknown and it's very um, different, but it's a new, it's our new, normal of moving forward and what God's called us so to do. So we pivoted specifically, we, we pivoted and did a, we moved our podcast over to the subject that week. We brought on Dr. Darius Daniels to talk about uh, these things. I, I called a number of friends personally to try and really help, help me see what I'm not seeing. And then I did a sermon on it and, and some posts. And then we took our daughters, we've been involving our family. We, we, we watched Selma and we Bought a book on Dr. King, and we watched uh, the Hate You Give. We watched. We did a whole week of movie nights about about the issue of civil rights and race, and 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 then my daughters expressed an interest to go to a protest, and so we as a family did that. And and um, I was not in any way expecting the volume, the torrential volume of criticism and anger and hate and vitriol that has come our way from us expressing. Um, the need for this conversation and, and, and seeking to express solidarity with those from the, the African-American community, community who are expressing their anguish. And it has been torrential. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because uh, I had a conversation with uh, a friend of mine who's Caucasian, who, and I, I don't want to say who, 
but large influencer uh, type thing who said that her direct messages have just been devastating because she's been standing with African-Americans as well. Can you, can you just, because I think that's driving a lot of the fear when David reported on a lot of pastors not talking about it publicly or engaging anything. I wonder how much of that is based on the fear of what their church is going to say, what their board might say, donors walking away, or just frankly, the unpopularity. Like what is, what happened? I want to measure my words, but I think my deep down, I believe it is exposing, it is exposing a far more sizable mass of a glacier below the surface of racism that truly exists. Just even in the resistance, you you throw a rock, the dog that barks loudest is the one that got hit into a, into a pack. And I think the fact that there is so much vitriol in response to this and defensiveness and deflection, it, it seems to present the fact that, that there's a nerve that's being touched. And that, to me, is presence of a mass under the water. If there's nothing there, talking about mm-hmm. it doesn't bother you. You know, uh, but because something clearly is there, there's something to defend. I'm not, I'm not racist. Wait, wait, what do you, what do you mean? You know what I mean? Like thou, thou protesteth too much. And I've been shocked and, and, and somewhat um, flabbergasted making sense of it all. Can, can you, without, you know, revealing any confidences or anything, can you say the nature of the kinds of messages that you've received? Like what, what have been, what have been the common tones or refrains in the pushback? Well, the thousands of them, and I wish they were DMs, they're public comments. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard everything from, okay, so standing with a sign that says, I held a sign that said, um, until Black Lives Matter, all lives don't matter, because that's yeah. how I see it. If, if We can't say all lives matter if there are lives in our country that don't matter. Uh, the thousands seem to fall into buckets. Uh, bucket number one, I would say, is abortion. Uh Bucket number two. Like they want you to say. Why don't you ever say about anything abortion. about abortion? Why don't you okay. preach about abortion? That's, that seems. So you can't speak about that unless you speak about abortion. Okay. okay. Which, yeah. Uh, then I would say um, uh, this is a leftist ploy. Is the second bucket. This is an attempt to to dethrone the, the current administration or or some uh, conspiracy. And then um, and then uh, number three you are virtue signaling or something like that. Some, something like you're only doing this because it's cool. This is, this is, and then, and then other ones I would just put into downright mean and awful category, like stuff like um, this invalidates everything you've ever done and every book you've ever written and every sermon you've ever preached and you're clearly a false prophet, you know? So essentially more the outlandish accusations. So, but those would be generally speaking, the four that I've seen. How do you not just get completely, discouraged or defeated in the midst of that kind of pushback? I don't read the comments. <laughs> well, that's one, that's one way we try and kind of scan them. I try and scan. I, like, I try and look at comments. Like I look at the news enough to know the gist of what's going on without really taking too much of it in to become toxic. Yeah. I guess it, to me, it, it's more, it's more sh- indicative of a problem. I guess I'm looking at more like, Oh, okay. It's a bigger problem than I thought. Gotcha. That's the, that, that's the noise from the church, the needing to change the subject, needing to be, you know, and I heard a, a, a pastor today that said something very interesting. He said, the church today is, um, is applying the exact opposite logic that the moral majority has approached 
for decades. That is to say, when told that abortion is a, um, we needed to spiritually push through, they say, no, no, we need a political solution. We need to vote with this party because we need a political solution, not just a spiritual one. But now they're using the exact opposite logic when speaking about race. This can't Mm. be solved politically. It must be solved spiritually and wanting us to stop talking about a political issue and and just let God change people's hearts. So it's almost like that seems to be, I I resonate with that, that that, that that's a, a, a fallacy in thinking. I appreciate that you guys are um, just reflecting on just learning and repenting yourselves and taking your family through this journey. I know we as a family have done that too the last few weeks. Um, <clears throat> what do you think this means for how you're looking at discipleship through the summer and into the fall? You know, if this is a bigger, maybe you don't have the answer to yet, but what, is, what have you learned in the last week that, that tells you if this is a bigger issue than, than we might have reckoned with? You know, what does that mean? It's probably, you know, it's not just a sermon, you know, it's, there's probably some deeper hard work that needs to happen. And what, how are you reflecting that so far and, and how you're thinking? Well, I think um, it's really caused us to, um, I think, even just lead, lead our staff in a way like we started doing, um, we're just calling it noonday prayer on Tuesdays, where we just gather all of our staff on, on Tuesdays and, and, pray for this in particular, pray for whatever God's leading us to pray for. But that I feel like has been a shift. And then even just um, leading our staff in this way to the best of our ability, it's, it's like, we don't really know, but follow us. Let's, let's go do this. But, um, but, but truly, I mean, it just seems like as God's changing our hearts, as we're pouring into the people nearest our, our prayers that it would pour out into our church as well. But I know we're going to do um, something in the month of July where um, it's a faith and prejudice thing for churches all over all, who wants to be a part of it, but where they're focusing on um, each day of this particular week, um, bringing up a subject uh, with different leaders, speakers, and, the goal is to have our, our church, those who are willing, wanting to, to, um, be, be talking about it in their small groups. Yeah. And so th- that is one like action, um, that we're doing uh, more than posting on social media and everything. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. And continuing the conversation through, uh, as it, it just so happened to also beautifully line up that in the month of July, we have two speakers from the African-American community. They're going to be preaching at our church, uh, bookending a series that we had already planned. And so, yeah, we're really excited about those intentional steps, but then just longer term, long term, looking at ways where we can continue to, to, um, to serve the under um, served populations that do live in the Northwest. You know, we have many, um, uh, many, many, many Caucasians, of course, in Montana, they, they, they have, they um, refer to our area as uh, jokingly as the vanilla Valley because it's so white. So we've said, you know, God, well, in our um, immediate vicinity, what is an underserved pop often forgotten part of the population. And God's really put it on our heart to, uh, to reach the Indian reservations that are within, you know, driving distance of our location. So we're in earnest seeking to see how we might uh, shine light and, and, and do what we can in that regard. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. It, it really, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I was going to ask you, I was going to say Montana doesn't strike me as a particularly diverse community. And so I wonder if that's, because uh, we have a lot of listeners who are from the Midwest and even over the whole COVID thing, I keep hearing from people going, it's not really an issue here. It's not really an issue here, but. You well, know, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because I think, um, well, for one thing, uh, I will say, and I want to clarify the comments and, and, and the criticism has not primarily come from within our church. Uh, we had several people that did leave the church when I preached on it. Sure. Uh, although um, Pastor Craig Rochelle and I were joking that it's it must be very unsatisfying to quit a church that you haven't been to yet. So we almost wonder if we should reopen the doors just so they can slam the door. <laughs> Clicking that YouTube link must not be quite as fulfilling to leave a church. Um, but uh, but the the two the two that I know of who wrote me letters saying I'm leaving the church because you preached on this and you preached on white privilege and because you you know blah 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 supported you know this Black Lives Matter uh, conversation though not the movement is, is not how I you know was 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 putting my weight towards it but um, uh, the 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 majority of those to me would be people who maybe have been at a church I preached at one time or read a book I wrote or you know yeah. our larger ministry platform. Well, that's a challenge. You know, yesterday our church uh, dealt with it as well. Jeff Brody, our lead pastor, uh, and Danelle Suell, who is an African-American leader on our staff, had an open dialogue about racism and faith. And uh, the YouTube algorithm kicked in. It was one of our most downloaded uh, messages. But, oh, my goodness, the trolls that showed up, like the people that just, I don't even think they're from our church, but they just like, it was it was it was a crazy morning to just see, as you said, the nerve that this has hit, and like even trying to say that racism is a sin appears to be controversial. I don't know how that can be controversial, but it's controversial. What do you make of it, Carrie, David? It's a great question. I think it's the most important. Like you know, long after COVID, hmm. sorry, it's a really important issue. Yeah. It's a really, really important issue. And I think long after COVID, this will define a generation in a way that, um, that you know, a response to a virus, as sad as that's been, never has. And I just wonder if um, the fatigue we're all feeling coming out of COVID, but then decades, centuries, generations of fatigue of an oppressed people have sort of come together at the same time. I mean, you want to talk about tired. You want to know who's tired. Talk to your African-American friends, right? And so they're kind of anger. They're, 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 this is a moment. And the ones that I've talked to personally say they have more hope than they have had in their lifetime, which I think is very, very encouraging from where I am. But I think this idea, you know, your, your metaphor of this, you know, I thought I was done my run and then someone handed me a bicycle, it's like, what? Now I have to do this? I don't want to say that explains the comments on your social media, but I think there's a level of fatigue that runs so deep in leaders right now that they're like, I don't have the energy to fight it, even those who want to. And then, of course, there's the underbelly of the people who don't want to fight it and maybe really think that it's a mistake or it's political or whatever. So that's that's what I think. I don't know, David? Well, first of all, I'm just, I'm <laughs> just sitting back. I'm just sitting back, admiring uh, you guys, Jenny and, and Levi and Carrie. You know, we've been friends for a decade, and, and with the Lescos, you know, hopefully this will be the start of a great friendship between us. Because I love how you're thinking about this, how you're processing it, Carrie. Thanks for just showing your emotions, and 
Um, you know, I know I've been feeling a lot. Our team's been going through a lot. We're, we're just carefully thinking about uh, doing a, a summit, a, a whole day of learning. We're reading books. We're thinking about stuff. We're, we're repenting. We're just trying to understand how we could serve the church. And, you know, Karen and I were talking a little bit before we got on the air about how the early church, you see in the New Testament, you know, questions of race and in the Acts. And, you know, God has to literally give uh, Peter a dream and say, stop it you know, stop it. And, and so I feel like God's given us a, a, a moment of grace here as, as the white church to do some things differently and not just, you know, just sort of do them differently, but do them completely differently. Well, that was powerful in and of itself. And again, that is a segment of an interview we did. And you can head on over to Church Pulse Weekly and get the whole thing if you want. But now I want to shift gears and bring you uh, the entire conversation that David Kinneman from Barna and I had with Albert Tate and Nicole Martin. So this is unabridged. It lives in a couple of episodes of the Church Pulse Weekly, uh, along with the research that I'm asking Albert and Nicole to respond to. So again, if you want the whole context, make sure you check out Church Pulse Weekly. But the conversation in and of itself, uh, all of these stand alone. And I think this one's going to rock you. It continues to rock me. So here we go morphing into the conversation with Albert Tate and Nicole Martin. Okay, so uh, I'm so excited to have Nicole Martin and Albert Tate with us. Nicole is Director of U.S. Ministry for the American Bible Society. Albert Tate is the pastor of Fellowship Monrovia and uh, also a sought-after speaker. Welcome to both of you. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. Thanks so glad for- to be here. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love for you, uh, maybe we'll start with you, Albert, just react to some of the findings that uh, David shared with us at the top of the episode. So we'll hear from Albert, and then I'd love to get your take on that, Nicole, after. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you guys for having me here. And I am for sure fully arrived and confident. Uh, in my ability to <laughs> I knew it was Albert. I knew, I, I thought of all the people <laughs> I had to be Albert I, who I answered, answered that. 18 times that question. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the whole 18%. <laughs> no, I, I think though, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised at that at all. I've been navigating uh, multi-ethnic space uh, by being a black man navigating really white evangelicalism for about 15 years. My church is a very multi-ethnic church uh, it's built on the, obviously, the clear view that we see that multi-ethnic church in the Bible. We see Revelation 7-9. We see this tribe. We see this great group of diversity um, where we're standing around God's throne declaring worthy is the Lamb. And it has been common to me to see that we are eager to stand around the throne, but very reluctant to sit around the table. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to experience this great range of diversity in heaven, or it's there in heaven, whether we want to experience it or not, it's what's going to happen. How we intentionally opt into that and sit around the table. Um, I mean, to be honest, guys, I, I, I want to have a real conversation. I want to be as honest as possible. Um, the reality is I'm, I've grown accustomed to being disappointed by the lack of engagement by my white siblings on this issue. Um, I've, I've grown accustomed to that disappointment because I've seen it over and over again, a desire to talk about racial reconciliation at times, a hope to see it. We want to, we, we love to get one or two people of color on our worship teams and make a couple of staff adjustments. 
but it's always grieved me, especially in these moments, um, the lack of investment engagement in this issue by my white uh, Christian siblings. Um, it's a burden and a pain that I carry. And, and to be really honest, most of your favorite speakers that are people of color, favorite authors that are people of color, as I've sat with many of them, we all carry the same burden and the same disappointment. Do you think the data showed that? I was honestly, when I first read it, and I mean, we're doing this in real time, and so I got it a few hours before we recorded this episode. Uh, I was shocked that the engagement was as low as it was, and it would probably be a high watermark right now, given everything that's going on in the culture, right? Like if you took this poll in February, you'd see a lower level of response. You know, it's easy. I, to be honest, I was slightly, I had the opposite. I was surprised that that many people said that they were somewhat engaged in it. Okay. And it makes, me, it makes me want to define even what somewhat is, uh, because that, that's a whole thing. Um, there's a whole propaganda and people are comforted by pundits and voices that convince them that y'all, this issue isn't even real. Mm. So let alone someone empathizing in this moment, there's a whole demographic in white evangelicalism that would say this is not even real. A year ago, probably a little bit earlier than that, but that was a term that, that pundits would use as race baiting. And what that would do is it was their way to create comfort for whites to ignore the burden and the plight of their neighbor by just calling it race baiting. What that does is it gives me an excuse not even to listen to you. So you want to see the enemy's greatest winning strategy convince white Christians that the problem doesn't exist. And you ain't going to ever pray or change something that you don't even believe is real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nicole, how about you? I want to come back to some of that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the elephant in the room. And it's not just, you know, leaving it at convince them that it doesn't exist, but for the white Christian, convince them that this is not a real biblical issue. Convince mm-hmm. them that this is a social thing, that this is a political thing, that this is marginal, that this is, um, this is a contextual theology that's not a real biblical worldview. I had an email today from someone asking, is this really the right biblical worldview to begin talking about race? And there's so, so much wrong with that. My heart grieves for 101 different reasons in this season. But there is a part of my heart that grieves for the lack of consistency and thorough education for white Christians to see themselves as in a context. So part of this myth of, you know, I grew up in these these systems. I I grew up in the predominantly white schools and, you know, the predominantly white colleges and, and, you know, started my education in the predominantly white seminary. And this, this idea of whiteness as normal and everything else as a thing hurts white people. It hurts white Christians. It hurts us when we say that Jesus is just about the individual because then we can't see the community. It hurts us when we say there's a systematic theology on sin, but racism is not systematic. I mean, there are all these little nuances in the way that we think about theology that I believe now is the time to break up some of that bad theology and let the Bible speak. Let the Bible speak on harmatology, on what a systematic sin looks like. 
hashtag racism. <laughs> you know, like let's let's let the Bible speak and say, yes, you are white, and that means something. And you have a lens, you have a hermeneutic by which you read the Bible, and that is a thing. And in the same way, your black brothers and sisters have a hermeneutic. And guess what? You actually need that in your life to be closer to Christ. So there, there's so much to unpack. Um, but I, I, I do, I, I, I'm an optimistic person when my top fives is optimism and positivity. I bring pom-poms everywhere I go. I'm like, yay. Um, but there is a, there is a bit of skepticism in these conversations. Will they really hear? And I don't believe they, meaning my white Christian brothers and sisters were really here, A, unless they don't hear it from themselves, and B, unless this hearing doesn't shift a thinking, a theology, a way of being with God. I've heard you say, Nicole, that people need a, uh, that there are theological barriers in, in the way. Can we talk about that? Like, what do you mean by that? That there, there, our theology has to change on this. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. I I do mean that. So, um, for example, let's, let's just take the sense of community. Um, you know, there's a clear, every Christian would say community shows up in the Bible, that God cares Mm -hmm. about community. I mean, God is, he's Trinity. This is not a self-contained kind of isolated God. Um, And yet, for some reason, one of the challenges of evangelicalism is this hyper-individualization when it comes to salvation. It's, I accept Jesus for myself. He saves me from my sins, which then allows for some people to say, well, I personally like Black people, so therefore, this is not my problem. I personally have a Black friend. Um, But this hyper-personalization is part of, I think, a, a uniquely American thing, but it's part of the problem. This is this this issue of racism is not about whether you like a person of a different color. This is not about whether you have a close black friend. This is not even about whether you spoke up or you went to a protest. This is about recognizing what is in the ground of America. It's about recognizing what has connected us and separated us for more than 400 years. And that, I think, is where we get into a deep theology of individualism versus community, of systems versus individual choices. And that's where we start to shake things up. Yeah, and I think a fundamental way that this shows up in this moment is our inability to see one another as brothers and sisters and siblings and then to empathize with one another concerning Mm -hmm. their pain. So there's a lack Mm -hmm. of empathy. There's a lack of seeing us and our burdens. So if you have an experience with police, then that shapes your whole experience with police. So when I talk about mine, I am other, uh, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. I'm deceived, or there are those that have gone through great lengths to, to, to help you disregard the yeah. the concerns of your black brothers and sisters because they will they take wide scope they're 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 pundits they get paid a lot of money who are black to convince whites not mm-hmm. to listen to the burden and our pain because it's absolutely <laughs> irrelevant irrelevant which takes us out of our biblical ethic right because we're siblings we're brothers and sisters so we're supposed to at least empathize but we can't that just goes how show how stronghold how big of a stronghold this is. It's not even our natural proclivity to empathize with the burden. It's our natural proclivity proclivity to say, that's not real. Mm. So the amount Mm. of times that I've had to defend my tears Mm. to my white siblings is crushing. Mm. The amount of times that I've had to position myself based on the comfort 
of whites. Mm. So listen to this, hear this. Um, when Nicole talks about whiteness and our inability to see it, Carrie, Dave, here's the game changer. If we don't get this, everything is a waste of time. Mm. If, if white siblings cannot see whiteness, mm-hmm. and that's not saying your, your whiteness, they're saying whiteness as a system yeah. that we all live within, that we all need to be delivered from. That even mm. my white siblings. Mm. And here's here's what I'm talking about. So white is absolutely normalized as the standard, mm-hmm. and we're trained to see everything else as other. All right. Okay. So my my all Bible college, all Bible college, I went through systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And then if I had an extracurricular course called black theology. Yeah. What that said to me was that systematic theology is white theology. That's right. Because it consisted, it consisted of all white theology theologians, all white authors, all white contributors. And if I wanted to get into black perspective, I had to go study black theology or Latino theology. Let me come out of that. Let me go a little, let me go a little little lower hanging fruit. My iPhone right now, it just got emojis that existed of people of color. I've been using a white thumb for years. (laughs) I just got a thumb that was made for a person of color. Do you know why that took so long? Because white people, there you go, Nicole. There white you people go. made the iPhone. So yeah. when white people made the iPhone, when they were creating systems, they created images that looked like them. Mm. It was designed for them. It was not designed for me. I just heard T.D. Jakes talk about this. He said the iPhone, the facial recognition, you can Google this. There are whole things about this. Mm. Facial recognition. All the facial recognition studies and research was done on white faces. So it had problems recognizing black faces. That's right. So if the iPhone was built that way, can we talk about how America was built? Yes. Mm. It was not built for us. Mm. It was the, the systems weren't designed for us. They were designed for whites, particularly uh, majority for white men, for, for the profile of white men. So when America, when the format was designed, there were elements i.e. the Constitution, that great sacred document that we hold so dearly, well, it acknowledges us as three-fifths a person. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't even acknowledge our full humanity. So there's a system that's built, and we're trying to now reconfigure a system that wasn't built on us, and we all need to be free from it. Like my sister was saying, you want, man, can you imagine going through a homiletics class, preaching, and not one black voice contributing to that class? Mm. Not one black preacher? Do y'all know how great... Yeah. Some of the best preaching in the history of our country are black preachers and going through a homiletical class, not being exposed to black preaching. That that's a disservice to my white siblings. You just (laughs) missed some. Your preacher just could have went to go into a whole nother level. So understanding that system. So that way we can call it down so we can all be free so that we might all benefit from the fullness of the family of God. We're not benefiting from those voices, but Y'all, until we see that, and until we can call that down, we're just putting Band-Aids on something. Band-Aid, parenthetically, just provided multicolors for Band-Aids. Band-Aids mm-hmm. have always been skin tone. You know what the skin was assumed to be? White. Right. So yep. what, that, what that creates, y'all, is a system of less than and, and, and all of that. So much so that in order for me to get a job, I've got to know how to speak in a way that makes you comfortable as a white man to hire me. Mm. So this is training that I get from day one. And this is stuff that unless you intentionally look for it, whites would never even see it. They would never experience it. When I went for an interview, I had to learn to speak in a way that, 
that will put me on par with your niece or your nephew or your son? Because I know you are very familiar with them. You're very familiar with their, their language and how they talk. Unless you've been immersed in black community, you would not be comfortable with how I would speak. It would remind you of a rap video or remind you of something you saw on TV or some negative image you saw. So I've got to learn to speak in a way. Watch this. I'm going to say something I don't say often in these spaces. So I'm going to give you an exclusive. I've got to learn to speak in a way consistently that makes whites comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I am I am trained every black leader. Every black leader that's ever been on a stage at a conference, you know how they always have one or two of us at every conference. Uh, every one of us that are at these conferences, your black past, they've all had to go through the school of speaking mm-hmm. and articulating in a way that makes whites comfortable. Because mm-hmm. we know that once you become uncomfortable, mm-hmm. the conversation is over. The movement is over. Mm-hmm. So we've always have to have a posture, not have to have, but culturally, there's always a posture of coddling your whiteness to make sure you don't get too uncomfortable. So if I work at a multi-ethnic church, I can't really post Black Lives Matter because it makes whites uncomfortable. Mm. Um, I can't really kneel, Kaepernick kneeling, uh, because it makes whites and their patriotism uncomfortable. So I, I can only go, Dr. Corey Edwards, and then I'll stop monologuing. Dr. Corey Edwards, who's a professor, she did tons of research on the multi-ethnic church. And her research showed after studying tons of pastors, they could only be as multi-ethnic as the comfort of whites at that church. So once whites got uncomfortable in the church, they would just pick up their ball and leave. Because sitting in the conversation of multi-ethnicity is a choice for them. Mm. They can choose to talk about it. So they can choose to preach about it or not. They can choose to talk about race or not. They can could, they could opt in and out of this conversation. People of color don't have that luxury. It's not a conversation we talk. It's a reality that we live and we have to navigate it every day as we engage white culture. I know one of the things that's made me uncomfortable um, is the research. And, and you know, it's been uh, three, four or five years. We've been studying more and more. I've got to give credit to our founder, George Barna, who was studying uh, the state of the African-American church. 20, 20 or more years ago, and, and we've in all of our research, we always include a diversity of people we interview. I do think that we've been we've been I've been soul searching and repenting of the fact in the last month and, and really over the last number of years that we haven't always given an interpretation that's helpful for you know sort of the, the, the black church or the multi ethnic church or the Hispanic church. We've done our very best, but we have a lot of ground to cover, and we we are I'm working, we are working at, at, our, at our very best of our that to grow in that. One of the things that's made me uncomfortable in the last number of years is seeing the data, the gaps between white born again Christians and black born again Christians. It's like all the theological theological, uh, questions are the same, but, but ethnicity is different. And then you look at the differences in terms of their perspectives. And so, you know, this like the lived experience of black Christians is very different than white Christians. Things like the reality of police brutality. We actually studied this about four years ago. And I remember just sort of staring at, there's like a 40% difference between black Americans and, 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 and black Christians and white Christians, not just black Americans and white Americans, but black Christians and white Christians. Uh, and then more recently, a couple a year, a year ago or so, we, we did a, a study uh, called where do we go from here? And we saw that uh, white practicing Christians 
uh, we're far less likely, about 40 points lower, to believe that slavery 400 years uh, ago still affects sort of, you know, sort of racial dynamics in the country, whereas black, black, black practicing Christians far more likely. And a lot of white Christians said they don't even think about it. And so I think one of the things I'm interested in hearing from you, uh, because again, part of my repentance and soul searching, and as a company, we're, we're going through our own process here at Bond to think about how can we serve? We're actually doing a study called the State of the Black Church. We're working on a multicultural church study with the Lilly Foundation. Uh, we've got a lot of studies in, in, the, in the works. We're working with um, African-American voices and leaders and organizations what would you guys advise to Barna? And then by sort of virtue of that, how do we think about this gap? Like, how can we help uh, give people a perspective of someone else's experience? And for me, the part that's been most disconcerting is, you know, talking to my black friends who are like, are like wow, look at the big difference on police brutality. And they're like, yeah, that, that's me. I've had that experience. And it's like, wow, this isn't just, you know, like someone I don't know. This is a, this is a lived experience of my black brothers and sisters. How, how, how could I, as a researcher, how can we as white Christians, you know, begin to understand this gap and internalize it in a way that would really bring about deep change? Hmm. Well, first of all, I'm glad that you're asking that question. And I am so grateful for the journey of getting to know you. I know you don't ask this question out of, you know, performance or just because it's the right thing to do at the right time. I know you're sincerely asking this question. And I, I can remember, you know, even my first experiences with Christian research. And I remember having the distinct fear that researchers in America haven't always been for my people. And then, in fact, research um, has often been at the expense of my people. So you think about all of the awful research projects that have been at the expense of Black people. You think about the Tuskegee Project. You think about, um, uh, man, the uh, Henrietta um, and the DNA. The name is escaping me, but you know what I'm talking about. There's just been a history of research at the expense of Black people. And then when it comes to Christian research, um, there's been a lot of what Albert is talking about, this kind of implicit normalization of, of an experience that is not one that is shared by the Black church. I remember in the early 2000s, it was like, you know, the small group was the biggest thing. Well, if you look at the black church, we don't have a whole lot of small groups, but we've always had Sunday schools. We've always had the choir rehearsal. You've always had, you know, the deacons meeting and they became our form of small group. But that was largely ignored for this norm of, oh, everyone needs to have a small group. Or you take the idea of, um, you know, thinking about multiculturalism. I remember seeing a couple of surveys on what a real thrive church would look like. And there was always a question on how diverse are you? Well, when you think about the oppression that black people have to go through day in and day out, when I think about my dad and all of the stuff that he had to face when he was working at Giant Foods at a grocery store and then had to come home, the only place where somebody called him Mr. or Pastor was at the church. The only place where he got the respect that he was account afforded was at the church. There were, you know, when you think even back, uh, um, Al Rapito is this beautiful book called Slave Religion, the role of the church in Black communities was never just to hear the word. It was community. It was safety. It was let down your hair. It was dress up and be somebody. It was being called by your name and belonging to something that was bigger than you. So when you have a question for a Black church on how multicultural are you, that's not technically a fair question for churches that feel like this right here, this community, this Sunday morning worship is all I have. 
the one place where I know I can be somebody. So I, I'm, I, I think as researchers, part of the journey here is to own that research hasn't always been mm. um, profitable for Black churches, mm. that research in general hasn't always been a process to build Black people up, that research at its core in America, whether that was researching bodies, um, I'm thinking about, is it Sarah Barton? I, man, the names are escaping me at the moment. But there, There's all this historic context of how research has damaged the Black church, Black bodies, Black, black community, and that needs to be named. We haven't always done this right. In fact, some of the research we've done has harmed you. And you've tried to find yourself in this research and you've come up empty and maybe you've turned away. But the open hand is we don't just want to research you. We want to find out how we can learn from and with you. I mean, when, when we do research at American Bible Society, I was just talking to one of the researchers before this call, and they keep saying that the Black church has been one of the highest scripture-engaged contexts in the nation for years. So at what point do we not just say, well, that's an anomaly of Black exceptionalism? At what point do we say, you know what, what are they doing that we need to learn about? How can we as a church be better because of this experience? And that, I mean, there's, there's just so much to unpack. But I do think research is a tough area because it involves trust. And trust in America between uh, Black and white people in particular, but across cultures has been broken so I think a question that you can ask, David, is how can research help to rebuild trust? And how can I, as a researcher, rebuild trust with the communities we desperately need in order to tell the right full story? Good, thank you. I, I think um, as you, you all's organizations, you all's platforms, many contributors, many of your engagers and listeners um, not all, because I, I'm both a consumer of both of you guys' stuff, but majority white leaders, majority white men. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King said something. It's not a direct quote, but he said, the biggest opposition to this movement and this vision of reconciliation is not the raging racist. It's not the loud guy with the sign on the side of the street. It's, it's the moderate white Christian who's indifferent and silent. And I would argue much of the constituency that you guys serve possibly falls at risk to be in that demographic. And, and, and here's what I say, guys. I've been living in this space, so my church is multi-ethnic. I love, 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 love my white siblings. I think we got a moment. As an African-American who served in these churches for so many years and at conferences, I think we got a moment. We've got to tear down this wall, but we can't tear it down by ourselves. It's too big. We need all hands on deck. And it's not enough. So I would push. I would say it's not enough to acknowledge it and to see it. And we, we see a lot of that. There's a lot of posting, a lot of stuff. And I appreciate that. That's so important. But here's the big deal. And here's a graphic illustration. Forgive, forgive the graphicness of this example. But it's like we both live in the house, guys. And dad's abusing me at night. Mm. And you come to me after a while and you say, hey, Albert, I know, I know. I know dad's abusing you at night. And Albert, I want you to know that it's wrong. And I, and I, I, I think it's wrong. And then the following nights, you just go to bed and go to sleep. Mm. I don't need you to see it. I don't need you to believe in it. 
I need you to stand with me in opposition so we can fight against it. Because I can't take on dad by myself. But if you come and if you stand with me as my, as my sibling, we can overcome the thing that's oppressing me in the dark. So what we need, we need folks that are in the moderate, I don't know what to do section to get to the place to where they're not, they're not just saying, no, I'm not racist, but they're saying I'm anti-racist. I do the full, I call it the full gospel spectrum. You know, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul says to the thief, steal no more, but he just doesn't say steal no more. And he doesn't take a victory lap and say, you know what? I ain't stealing no more. He says, no, 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 no. Don't steal no more. And to take those same hands you used to steal with, now get a job. Now, when you get a job, make some money. Now that you got some money, save it. Now that you saved it, give it away. The full gospel spectrum is just to, not to be able to proudly say, I ain't a thief no more. The full gospel spectrum is to say, not only am I not a thief, but by God's grace, I've become generous. What we need to do is say, I'm not a racist anymore. Praise God, we're not racist. We don't have these, we, we're working on these implicit bias. But not only that, but we stand against it wherever it rears its ugly head. Whether that's under the table at Thanksgiving with Uncle Johnny telling racist jokes, whether that's on my job, whether that's in my hiring practices, whether that's at my church, wherever I see it, I stand in opposition for it. Whatever, whatever research and using the numbers to wake us up to the abuse that's happening in the house and then giving us a vision and holding us accountable to standing in opposition of that abuse that's happening in the house. Once we get there, I feel like we can have a whole new relationship uh, with one another and we can all fulfill our purpose. Because right now with me being abused and you being asleep ain't helping the house at all. Thank you for sharing that, Albert. I'd love to know, um, because I sent you a bunch of questions ahead of time. What, what questions should we be asking as a white leader, as a white male? What should I be asking? What should I be doing? This answer is quick, so I'll get it out quick, Nicole, so that way you can give a more uh, <laughs> academic, excellent answer. What do I not know? What do I not see? And am I humble enough to ask the questions to find out? The answers. What do I not know? What do I not see? And am I humble enough to ask to find out? To, and, and to step outside of my echo chamber. Because obviously the reason I don't know it and the reason why I don't see it is because I live in an echo chamber that hasn't afforded itself this insight to me. So if, you're, if you don't see it and if you don't know it, that probably means you've got you to gotta listen to more than just Fox News. You got to listen to more than just CNN if that's your thing, or you got to listen to more than MSNBC. You got to listen to more than elephants. You got to listen to more than donkeys. You got to start engaging the lamb, and you got to start inviting people from different perspectives to rock your ecosystem, because the ecosystem is antithetical to the kingdom of God. The echo chamber is antithetical to the kingdom of God. It's that that echo chamber is that thing that I hear all the time. That echo chamber, that and it has the people who tell me I'm right. Exactly. And that's comfortable. And the pundits that just reaffirm my, my social position, my, my position, you got to break that up. If you want to be a kingdom leader, you got to break that up. So if everything on your news feed is something you agree with, everything on your Facebook feed is something you agree with, then you're missing it. If you are angry and frustrated, but you hear other believers uh, saying something that you completely disagree with, ask yourself, is there something you don't see? Is there something you don't know? As a white leader, I'll say this. I know I say those short but I'm a, I'm a black preacher, so come on, let's be honest here. <laughs> short, short is relative. Here, here's, the, here's the deal. I, I, I'm forced to learn white culture. T.D. Jake said this, uh, and it stuck with me. He says, 
a white person can get a PhD and never know black culture, never have to know black culture. I can't get a GED without having to navigate white culture. So what does it mean for you to do work outside of your comfort concerning this area? And don't, don't, don't make, put the burden on your black friends to be your teacher. Go read books. A ton of them are out there. Uh, we can give you recommendations to put in the show notes if that's a thing. A mm-hmm. ton of them are out there that can help you begin to see what we're talking about. Do that and then reach out to minority friends or people of color and say, I read this book. Can I process it with you? Is there, are there some thoughts that I can have and kind of process that? Nicole, what, what would you add to that? Yeah, I I so appreciate um, your perspective. Your pastoral lens has been so helpful, even for me as I'm processing this. I think I think this is an important time for all of us to unpack fear. I mean, what mm. are you really afraid of? I'll I'll never forget um, right after Charlottesville. No, it was more right after Ferguson, right before Charlottesville. So it was like um, maybe a a two-year span. I had this sitting at a meeting with a group of evangelical leaders, and I was sitting with a prominent white pastor, um, megachurch, and I asked him what he's saying about race from his pulpit. And he politely said, "Uh, let's not get into that right now. Well, I was happening, I was on this particular day feeling quite bold. And sometimes, you know, in my code switching, we have to determine how bold one can be to be invited back in the room. And then I had to, I had to assess, is this a room I want to be invited back into anyway? (laughs) And decided that I was okay not being invited back. So I should just go for it. So I just went for it. I said, can you, I'm sorry, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I kind of want to know what keeps you from telling people in your congregation to care about me. Mm. And he said... Well, if I can just be honest, I can't afford to say something. And I asked, what does afford mean? And he very, very, and I thank God for his authenticity in this moment because he didn't have to be this honest. But he said, I've got board members that have already sent me letters that if you say something about this on Sunday, you'll be removed from your pulpit. He said, I have big donor families that have said to me, if you speak up on this, we will take our money and go elsewhere. And then he said, and that, and he said, and I acknowledge that that is horrible and sinful and wrong, but I've got kids and I've got a family and this church is all I have. And I think now is the time when we really need to reconsider the cost of what it means to take up our crosses and follow Christ. The only one who was appointed to take up the cross was Simon of Cyrene, Simon the African. So carrying the cross, Africans and and people of color have carried the cross in more ways than we could possibly imagine because we've always had in some people's views, little to lose. I mean, I'm already at the bottom of the totem pole. I'm already not going to be invited back. I'm already struggling. I'm already going to be, no matter how much education I have or how well I speak, I'm already going to be considered as not as good as someone else. So we've had to navigate costs differently. I think now is a time for white Christians to really evaluate the cost and to answer authentically that question about fear. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of losing money? Are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of losing your privileges? Are you afraid of losing your platform? And whatever that is, that's what Christ needs to deal with right now. 
That's what needs to be on the line. Because I think this isn't just about race. This is about consumerism. This is about privilege. This is about how we've entangled the life of the church in the ways of society. And to bring up Albert's point about um, King's letter from a Birmingham jail, when he talked about white moderates, he said, I fear that the church has gotten so caught up into the ways of the world that there's no distinction. And I think this issue is going to force pastors and leaders to say, what are you afraid of and what cost are you willing to pay for the gospel? Because if you're not willing to put it all down, if you're not willing to take up a cross, this cross, then maybe this isn't the right field for you. I don't know what else to say. I don't want to make it too harsh, but, you know, we're past the time of saying nice things and and trying to treat this rightly. I do believe this is the gospel cross. What are you going to take up this cross? And if so, are you willing to put it all on the line and risk it all? Because if I read my Bible correctly, whatever I take up the cross, whatever I lose for the gospel, I gain even more in Christ. And I will not Baptist preacher this thing. But still, I mean, there's no cost that's too much to pay for the gospel. Come on, come on. To be part of this kingdom. And I want to be part of that kingdom. And I've been, I've been paying that cost. But I want to see, I want to see the joy that comes from white pastors who say it cost me my board it cost me some members it cost me some followers i got fired you know yeah i got fired i lost my pulpit i lost some of my closest friends i i I lost my big donor and yet what i gained as a result was more than i could ever pay for yeah because that that side and i'll just jump on jump on this that that silence also cost us yes and you scream to us our lack of worth Mm. our lack of value while you scramble and hustle to get us on the worship teams or to get us to show up so we can make your flyer and make you look more marketable and more multi-ethnic than you authentically are. Mm. It cost us our value and our worth and you scream to us an insignificance to you. That's why we have to scream back to you. Black lives matter. That's why we say it. It's we, we're not, we're not affirming the organization. We are making a declaration of worth to a culture and to a people that seems to not see it or seem to not care. Whereas we are worried about our sons being killed. We are experiencing macro and micro aggressions racially and walking in that discomfort. You can't even have the disposition or the discomfort of making a post because of the risk of what your white siblings would say the brittleness and the lack of courage in those moments make us makes it really hard to stand and hug and sing kumbaya in these prayer meetings because we know that in the moments that matter the most, what we hear is a deafening silence uh, when it comes to your courage and your activism, willing to make strong stances that, that may cost you. I've known you guys for many years and we've been in a lot of rooms where uh, you are minorities. Uh, and uh, I, I'm curious what you, uh, I, I'm curious after hearing you talk today and um, you know, this, this, you know, the, just thank you for being so honest with us. Um, what makes it worth it for you guys? Because I see you as one of many who are doing this, but you know, like, like, wh- why do you sort of stay in this fight? What gives you hope? What gives you optimism as, you know, people who are trying to help bridge the gap, who are constantly translating uh, to your white siblings? 
and I'm grateful for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what motivates you in that and how can we learn from that strength as white Christians? I'd say for me, um, I have been blessed with some really strong, authentic, diverse friendships. It was my Korean American friend, Alice, who taught me how to pray at four in the morning. You know, it's my, it's my friend, Rob, who is more like a brother to me than, you know, Rob Kelly, more like a brother to me than others. It is the fact that I also feel a deep responsibility to steward my gifts. I'll, I'll never forget. I, um, I feel a little emotional talking about it because I carry this weight so heavy in these times. When I was um, in seminary, I was invited to go and serve in South Africa. And I'll never forget, I came back and I couldn't like go to Walmart or Target. I, I was just struggling. I was like, there's all this stuff. All these people have like nothing in South Africa. And here we are in America. We have so much. And I told my mom, I was like, I don't feel worthy to have the stuff that I have and to be in the places that I'm, I am in right now. Like, why, why, why shouldn't I just, you know, stay in my circle of comfort? Why do I have to keep bridging? And my mom said, it's in your blood. <laughs> she was like, your great grandmother was one of the first people to push for integration in the school system. You got a case of the can't help it. My mother was one of the first black women to be um, uh, crowned, a, what was it, class uh, president or something at her school. She got egged in a dress that my grandmother made for her. And she said, but it, it didn't take away the fact that I knew I was the first one in my family to do that. My great aunt is the first PhD in our family. My mom was like, you've got to show up in these rooms because when you show up, it's not your voice and your presence. It's your ancestors that show up. It's their presence. It's your great grandmother that shows up, that enters spaces that you can enter and she couldn't enter. When you get your education, it's your great grandfather who couldn't get a degree past eighth grade because he had to work the field. You've got to do that. So there is a certain impulse that says, I'm not doing it for me. I don't just show up because it's me. I show up because there's so much that's been instilled in me. And when I show up, I, I pray that I'm making room for my daughters to show up and for their children to show up so that somebody would hear. And I do wrestle there. There's another um, side of the black community that would criticize my showing up. You know, that would, that would say that my showing up is not faithful to what it means to be part of the black community or that when I show up, I'm not black enough or that I'm not strong enough. But I also think that the gospel calls me to steward the gifts I have, to steward the opportunities I have. And if God opens those doors, who am I to say no thanks? I walk through those doors because that's the gospel. That's the call of the Christian. And I deeply believe I'll be blessed. Just like I've been blessed getting to know you all. It blesses and enriches my life to have a wide variety, a wide spectrum of, of friends. So that when we get to heaven, I won't be, you know, put off. I'll be excited. I'd be like, yeah, I got friends in all these categories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that Nicole, was that, a great, great answer. Thank you, Nicole. Wow. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. I think I would, I would double down and say everything she said. Um, and I'll just, I'll just contribute this, but I, I think she said it so perfectly. And that is what motivates me, uh, guys, that, that sense of being and belonging and community and what I represent and who I get to represent. But also what motivates me is what I get to tear down. Yeah. Um, there are strongholds that I don't want my children to have to suffer against. My, me being a shepherd of white, Latino, Asian, and Blacks, my ch our church has everything. They're, they're really my family. And the reason why I keep fighting for this vision that I see of every tongue, tribe, nation, race around God's throne 
It, because to me, that represents freedom. So as one day we'll stand around the throne, I'm fighting so we can practice now by sitting around the table. Amen. And that my heart breaks over lost people. And honestly, guys, I think we got a lot of white leaders, a lot of white pastors that are lost. Their, their hearts have not been open to see this. And it's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. The Pharisees, they, they tried to get God, they tried to get Jesus because they were, they were so comfortable in the law and the systems that were created. And Jesus, they tried to catch him. And they said, Jesus, all right, prioritize him. What's, what's the big deal? What is it? And he says, listen, it's this vertical, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he said, the second one is like the first one, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you can put the whole law on those two things. It all rides. The prophet, everybody got to sit on those two. And I think we got the vertical one right, but we're missing the horizontal. He didn't say your love your neighbor as yourself, the ones that look like you, live like you, and vote like you. No. He says, love the neighbor as yourself. And I think we're missing a whole piece of the cross. I feel that we've got white brothers and sisters that are lost because they love God, but as soon as it gets to the horizontal part of the cross and it gets outside of people that don't look like them, live like them, or vote like them, they're missing the fullness of the body of Christ. I, um, we had drive-through communion yesterday and I had a lady from my church, a white lady, who had emailed and said, I don't, I don't think black lives matter. I think everybody's important, just minimizing the moment. And we've been teaching and trying to help unpack and understand what the, the burden of their black siblings. Y'all, this white lady, probably in her 60s, drove through our communion. And I'm, my job is just waving. I'm Miss America. I'm just waving at folks. She oh, I always thought by, of you, uh, Albert. I know. That's how, I, when I dream, that's how I see myself. Um, when, uh, which is a whole nother Barna study. That's a whole nother Barna study. <laughs> um, but um, when, when she drove by y'all, I got tears in my eyes because she drove by and she slowed down and she saw me and she lifted up a sign that said black lives matter <laughs> as she drove to receive communion. It was her way of saying, pastor, I see what you need in this moment and what you need is to be seen. And you need to know that your white sibling sees you. So I'm willing to lift up this sign. Kate Warren, Rick Warren's wife, she lifted up the sign and as people were going after her, talking about the organization, she says, I realize that when black people hear that, they're not thinking about the organization. We, we partner with organizations all the time that we don't align with fully theologically or that we, we ain't think about the organization. I don't know one black person that when you say Black Lives Matter, they think blacklog.org, the company. No, no, they're thinking about the value declaration and some whites refusal to see that. So what they say to us, which is the epitome of white advantage, of white privilege, if you will. Um, some people say, I sure wish you would find another way to say it. If you find another way to say it, then I'll join you. Hmm. So I don't like the way you're protesting. Find another way to protest, then I'll join you. I don't like that saying. Find another way to say it that makes me feel comfortable, then I'll join your burden. Kay Warren, I loved it. She says, I'm willing to risk being misunderstood by some in order that I might be seen as an advocate and a friend to my brothers and sisters that are hurting. We need that kind of courage. Wow. Um, thank you. I, at, at the risk of undoing all of this, there was a little bit left, a little bit left. And I just, I want to test, maybe there's nothing there. 
But I think when you were talking about what white leaders are afraid of, what white pastors are afraid of, is there anything else there? What else are we afraid of? Losing donors, people walking out, losing our job. What else are we afraid of when it comes to white privilege or anything else? I would just love to hear you. You know what? I would, I would say I think we're afraid of, I think they're afraid of being called a racist. Mm. That is somehow the worst label you can ever get in their mind. So they fight like crazy to resist any term. So where there will, and the problem is where there's no confession, there's no repentance. So of course we all have racism or implicit bias. It all depends on how you define the word racism. There's some people that argue that people of color can't be racist because race, the definition of racism is uh, prejudice plus power and leveraging that for someone. So as you take prejudice and then you take power and then you use that over others. So you take your power, your influence, right? So anyway, but I think that term, and I think we all just got to own it. I've got prejudice. I'm a rec- I say I'm a recovering racist. I've got racism in me. I've got prejudice in me. Mm-hmm. I've got things inside of me. It depends on how you, how you define the word. But people will take, some people will take issue with that. But, but the implicit bias, like that, I got stuff in me with it. just because you white, I, I'm suspicious of you. I got mm-hmm. that in me. I got that in me. And until white leaders can feel gospel grace freedom to confess that, you will never receive the full benefit of repentance because it's hard to reap the harvest of repentance when you haven't sown the seed of confession. So I think the fear of that word, the fear of that label, you just got to put it down and say, let me just confess. Let me just be honest. Let me, let me confess and let me repent. Now I can start a process of redemption and restoration. But without confession, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just say that I've I've talked to, and it kind of, you know, made me chuckle, but I recognize how serious this is. I've talked to white leaders who have a fear of pulling that one little thread on the shirt and then the whole shirt unravels. I think there is a fear. If I get on this bandwagon, if I say Black Lives Matter, then am I also going to have to ordain women? Or am I also going to go down the road of, of civil rights for um, homosexuals and for, am I also, if I do this, am I going to open the door for all of these um, things that I've perceived as cultural to now come flooding at me? If I stand up for black people, will I then be on the line to stand up for Hispanic people and for Native American people and for women and for, and, and, I, I think the faithful answer to that is maybe. I mean, I think that there is, there's, a, there's a sense there that theologically throughout history, we have been able to take one stance and still hold the, the floor on another. That there, there is a legacy of faith that says we can say that um, Black people are fully human and still, and, and we can even honor, um, you know, the, the beautiful tapestry of faith and, and the, the various ethnicities of race. We can do all of that and still hold some theological convictions. So I think the question is, if you fear that saying Black Lives Matter, or if you fear standing up for the rights of Black people in America is going to lead to doors that you're not comfortable with, then I would say first assess those doors. They may be valid things. There may be, this may be a thread that you might see, oh my goodness, I've also been um, guilty of not treating Native American populations well. That might actually be a thing. 
But then you may also realize that the thread stops and it stops at a certain place for yourself. And for some, you know, it is, okay, I'm taking the stand on issues of homosexuality. I will not go that far. Or I'm taking the stand. I'm going to, you know, focus primarily on black and white relationships because that's where I need the most work. So I'm not advocating for a solution. As much as I'm saying, if this really is a fear, if you really fear the snowball effect, then parse that out. Parse Mm. it out and don't be afraid to go there because I don't believe that any of this is a surprise to God. And I don't believe that any of it is outside of the sphere of God. So if God is big enough to handle all of these things, then what, what fear is not an authentic one that you can bring to Christ and say, I'm afraid of that right there. Here's the warning. I'll throw this in there too real quick. Here's the warning. Here's the deal. And here's where Barnard, you guys and glue can really help. Yo, it's a blockbuster moment. As you guys have been talking about the quarantine with all this other kind of stuff, the ground is changing. The ground is shifting. Look at these, look at these protests. Go on, go online and look at them and then zoom in. These aren't black people, friends. Yeah. These are young people and these are white kids. So your white kids and your grandkids ain't buying what you sell it no more if you're not willing to engage in this conversation. You are noticing a dramatic shift in the landscape. And this is a blockbuster moment. Do you really want to sink your heels down in the concept of racist videotapes? Or do you want to get into the hope of multi-ethnic reconciliational streaming? Um, to take the metaphor out of the way. You know, um, it's like <laughs> the, the, ground, the ground is shifting and it's generational. And I think some of the research you can show millennials and Gen Zers, yo, they on some other kind of stuff. We were very critical of millennials in a lot of ways, but they carry the ball on this and they have courage where previous generations have settled for smaller victories. They are fighting for the whole thing. So there's also some incentive is the wrong word, but there's some, there's some health with aligning with this cultural moment because God, I think, is doing something generationally and culturally here that's very biblical um, that you don't want to be on the other side of. So it, it, the, these are white kids out here, man. Uh, and it's so inspiring. These are Asians out here raising their voice. Um, uh, Latinos, this is a very multi-ethnic led movement. It's not just black people. Mm-hmm. And I have the data to support everything you just said, Albert, and all of our research among practicing Christians, millennials, Gen Z, among those that are very committed to the faith, among the most resilient young disciples. These are issues that are very deep um, and they're very different than the gen, most Gen Xers and certainly the boomer generation. And a lot of the questions that young people, young Christians have is where does the church show up where, where it matters most? Does the church show up to help us navigate discipleship, not in some sort of pristine, you know, Sunday morning sort of worship experience where all the answers are sort of cut and dried, uh, but will our faith be relevant in, in the actual world we live in? Um, and so, and I think, again, just as you said, Nicole, there's a really good, healthy discussion for church leaders about where are the false promises of yes. diversity and the, and the wrong mindedness, the secularism of diversity, mm-hmm. but where is yep, the gospel right. in right. diversity? And so I think we need to trust these um, young people more than we do, that they can actually help us think through this, that they can both be taught and they can also teach us and they can lead us into a better place. I'm actually thinking about the the song that was sort of 
prophetic in its way coming out of Elevation Church, um, the blessing that I'm sure you've, you've seen or I'm sure listeners have seen, but this idea of, you know, my children and, 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 and their children and their children. And as you were talking, Nicole, I actually got a picture of that song, um, mm-hmm. which is this idea of, of God's, you know, sort of for us and his favor on us. And, and even in the struggle and in this moment, we're all, we're all wrestling in new ways. I know I am. I know our company is. Um, I know we're, we're we're asking God like help us. We repent. We want to we want to do better. We want to we want to turn the other direction. Um, I'm sort of thinking of that song like what is the path that we're we're creating for future generations of the church and how important the story will be for them. Well, and and to that point, Albert, what you were saying about the people who are on the streets, like zoom in a little bit, uh, David. I've been thinking a lot about um, unchristian which is what, 12 or 13 years old now, but in many ways, very prophetic. And the people who would be on the streets are also the people who have been most resistant to the way church has been over the years. And I think it is a wake up moment for the church, you know, particularly as we've chronicled on Church Pulse Weekly already in a very practical way, a lot of the people because of COVID, they're just not coming back, period. And now they got more reasons not to come back. And not that that is what should make you look in the mirror, but you're right. This is like problem. And I, I got one more question for you because we've both been in, in green rooms together. Uh, Nicole once or twice, but Albert a few times we've been at events. And uh, again, I'm learning an awful lot in this season. But what you said about, you know, <laughs> I've never had to conform to black culture to get an award or to get a degree or, you know, I studied systematic theology as well and preaching. And you're absolutely right. I don't think we studied any black preachers. I've studied them personally because I think you're right. You guys are, you know, there's some real wealth there. But I want you to think about like learning how to speak white because you were bringing back to mind some conversations I've had with some next-gen communicators, African-American friends who said, I know there are certain things I can say on white platforms and certain things I can't, or even, you know, when you're the African-American speaker at a conference, right? Uh, and and I'd love to know, what would it look like for you to feel like you could be you? What would change? So what, what had to happen with me on my journey is I had to learn, so there's a, there's a, there's a distinction, there's a nuance. So you've got what Paul does. He says, when I was with the Jews, I became as I became like the Jews when I became with the Gentiles. So I became those things so that I might win some. Right. So I've learned to be able to do that and authentically show up who I am, but also being acutely aware of who my audience is. is. So therefore, I need to position myself accordingly, not changing who I am, but showing up in a way so that they might hear me effectively. That's slightly different. Early on, as being a young Black man, uh, in white spaces, I had to deal with my own internal identity crisis. So that way, like, who am I? I never forget. I was going to really preach the first time. This is my first time preaching in a large white audience. And I called uh, my homeboy, Pastor Ricky Jenkins, who practices at uh, Pastor Southwest Church in Indian Wells. Um, and we both grew up in Pearl, Mississippi. He's, he's just my, my man. I said, bro, I'm about to preach. It's a room full of white kids. I was a new youth pastor. It was like three, 400 white kids in the room. I was like, man, I'm scared. I may holler and scare one of them. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, dude, tell me. And he said something so profound that his dad told him one time. He said, Albert, it'll be a shame for them to go through all that trouble to get you there and you not show up. Mm -hmm. So he helped me to stand in that moment and to be myself 
while still speaking truth in a way, because I'm also, I strive to be an excellent communicator. So let's pull race and culture off the table. Any excellent communicator wants to be effective in what they do. So if I'm going to come to Canada to preach, I'm going to do some research. Tell me what's, what's cool in Canada. Tell me what they say. Tell me some of that slang saying, and I'm going to throw some of that in the conversation as a term of endearment so that I might endear them to my message and win them off. So that's just excellent education. So there's, there's one thing, me acclimating the white culture so I can be heard. There's another thing in me acting white. Mm. You see what I'm saying? I so I feel like what I've been able to do in, to mature in my ability to be, uh, to translate in multiple spaces, whether it's white spaces, whether it's black spaces, whether it's, I've been in all Korean churches. I've been in India where I had to preach in, so, and I would get a couple of in words from their language and try, I would throw it in there oh, and I'd freak them out. So, this is, so that's not me trying to act Indian. That's me honoring their culture in a way so that I might speak into it and move them to the place of the gospel, move them to Christ-centeredness, which is always my goal. As an African-American, I had to be early on and make sure that I had mentors giving me the message, Albert, you can speak to whites, but you don't have to act white. You don't have to be white to speak to them. That's a nuance that was very helpful. Same thing with you, Carrie. If you went on, on a revival tour in all black churches, Worst thing you could do is go up in there and start acting and acting like you're black when you preach. But the best thing you could do is learn some colloquialisms, learn some language, learn some terms, practice pausing so they can say amen behind you and clap and let that not freak you out. You know what I mean? Learn mm -hmm. the culture. It would freak me out. That's an accurate read. Thank you, Albert. But you, but, <laughs> but you would get better at it. You would be like, no, okay, this is a call and response. Let me pause so that way I'm not, I'm not talking through my punchlines. Cause you, they be clapping, and you're like, "Well, let me go on to my next one." No, brother, let him breathe. Let him get <laughs> some encouragement. You know, you would pick that up, but no one would say, "Carrie, you're, you're acting black." No, right. I'm learning to communicate to blacks well. You see what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. there's a little nuance. No, that's a really helpful thought. And you know, I, I, I mean, I've interviewed you just about your communication skills because I, I love the way you communicate. And did you, would you say you're at the point now where you feel like you get to be you? Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Anybody, my wife knows me. She's seen me in multiple contexts. I'm who I, I'm who I am. And, and hey, and that's for better or for worse. It just <laughs> is what it is. So I get to be who I am. But man, when I'm mentoring other young leaders trying to navigate this space, the devil will try to tell you, you got to become like somebody else. And it's like, no, you got to become good and excellent. And a part of excellence is knowing your audience and being able to speak in a way that they will hear you. So I know that there are trigger words that I don't use in white audiences. Can you give me an example of one or two? Oh, like Black Lives Matter is a trigger word. So <laughs> if I, oh, yeah. If I went to a white church and said Black Lives Matter and talked about that. But now here's the deal. I'll still say it, but it's how I say it and how I set it up in order for you to hear me effectively. Because I'm not, I'm not interested in blowing the room up. I'm interested in bring, bringing the room into our godly identity. Hmm. So how I do that is important. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to pull no punches. I'm not going to be like, ooh, I didn't, I didn't say it because I was scared. You know, I mean, but on a personal level, I have those fears at times. But I know God has given me a message of reconciliation. And I've got to say really hard things. And I've got to have a conversation that is going to make people feel really uncomfortable. Do I want to beat the sheep in this moment or do I want to guide the sheep? 
So in order for me to guide them, I speak in a way, Ephesians talks about this. He says, you don't communicate in a way that makes you feel better about saying it. You communicate in a way so that they might receive it and hear it. And in Ephesians, he actually says, so don't even say it until you can say it in a way where they can hear it. I'm not interested in beating up my white siblings. I'm interested in their deliverance and freedom. So I want to speak in a way that they might experience the fullness and the freedom of the gospel. And I know that that causes a radical love and a radical resistance against our cultural ideologies and white privilege and comfort. But I want to call them out of that lovingly and give strong accountability in a way that inspires them and moves them to the gospel and not beats them up and hardens them. And it, But it's prophetic. It's a, it's a give and take. And it's not always, you know, it's a little bit, but that's about maturity and communication. Nicole, how about you? Well, first of all, I think he's absolutely right. And I, I realized listening to um, Albert that the other dimension I wrestle with is gender. Mm-hmm. So as a woman, um, our society is still trained to see a woman before she's heard. And one of the things that I will always navigate is how I physically show up in a space is actually sometimes heard before a word comes out of my mouth. And I think one of the challenges of these times, as we think about race, we, we, as a Black woman, I cannot have that conversation without also thinking about what it means for me to be a woman in these spaces. Mm. When I show up in a room full of white people, I do have to wonder and think through, do I want to wear braids or is that going to be a distraction? Do I need to wear bigger earrings or smaller earrings so that it's not a distraction? What kind of shirt should I wear? What colors should I wear? What shoes should I wear? And all of those messages speak before I speak. So if I'm being strategic about the gospel, then I have to think authentically and intentionally about even my appearance. Now, for me, this is an asset because I believe one of the greatest gifts of Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary, uh, who brings the gospel to the disciples, is this full embodiment of the gospel. There is no resurrection without embodiment. There is no Jesus without embodiment. There is no redemption without embodiment. So this embodiment allows me to see myself entirely by how I show up and by what I say. But there is a cost. And as a Black woman in society, I was just reading an article about this the other day. Um, this, this notion of what we do with our hair often speaks a whole language of its own. So it is something that we have to navigate. And you're asking, Carrie, well, what can, what can be done? You know, let's say we show up in a green room. What, what can be done to make me feel more comfortable? Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I don't think anybody else should answer that for me as much as I need to answer that for me. The last green room I had mm. was the state of the church. And I was there with Bree, uh, with Reverend Bree Parker. Man, we connected over hair at the start because we knew the time and energy and thought that went into how am I going to wear my hair for this thing? I mean, I knew what I was going to say, but the question was, <laughs> how am I going to wear my hair? And that became a point of bonding. And when you look back at African heritage and history, your hair spoke about your nobility. It spoke, you know, how many ornaments you had in your hair, gave your class and society, all of this. So I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think that there's anything for others to do to help people of color who have to show up in these as minorities in these spaces. I don't think there's anything you necessarily have to do as much as it is. I want to say to myself and to people like me, just show up, 
just show up in a way that God can show up. For me, that might mean I might have to put, you know, flats on so that I can show up for God to show up. It might mean that I can be a bit more free in certain contexts because God can show up through that. But it is a personal question. And my very last thing, this whole season has been um, a personal kind of identity, um, a, a rekindling of identity for black people in white spaces, mm. where, where it's been a reminder to like, don't, don't forget who you were. I know you've been, you know, code switching for so long, you forgot what the other code was. I know that you have suppressed some memories so deep within you just to make it. But maybe now's a time to get in touch with those parts so that you yeah. can show up in the green room, so that your white brothers and sisters are not deprived of the full you. And so that you know that God loves that part of you, all of it. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful, Nicole. That is beautiful. You know, I, I hosted- about my hair for this too. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I hosted a national TV show for a couple of years here in Canada and it was coast to coast. And so I would host with female co-hosts. And I think in two years of occasional hosting, I got one email about my appearance, which was, you shouldn't wear jeans. I think it was like really long. Almost every day, the female hosts would get feedback on your earrings are too big, too small, your hair is too long, too short. And I, I just remember we'd be in makeup, right? Because you got to wear that for TV. And they would tell me about their emails today and the comments they would get. And I'm like, that is just something guys, I mean, you know, we just, we just, that's not a reality we face. And so thank you. Thank you for raising that as well. Well, I, I am just really grateful for this conversation today and for the two of you. Uh, thank you for your leadership. Uh, thanks. Thanks for helping us understand. Yeah. And this isn't the end of the conversation and it's, uh, it's the beginning. I think you've, you've helped a lot of us name the elephants in the room. David, any thoughts as we wrap up today? I just want to say thank you from my heart to you guys as friends, um, all that you guys have, have gone through um, even the last few weeks. Um, I just know it's been, you know, from Ahmaud Arbery and, uh, you know, to George Floyd and just, just, and then, and then, you know, the flood of request, Hey, explain how that help us understand. And that's one thing, you know, I appreciate even in, in sharing from yourselves today of yourselves. Um, and I just want to say that I'm, I admire you guys. I've looked back over the number of years of our French post said earlier and how you guys are, 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 are bearing up trying to help us understand and to, to speak into the church and, and to change it. So, um, I'm with you. I want to see the church change in a deep way, uh, that there'll be a new wine skin that comes out of this moment. So I, I lo just love you guys and appreciate you so much. Likewise. Nice. I want to see the world change and it'll come yeah. through the church. Well, that was powerful, raw, jarring, honest, and that's why I wanted to bring it to you all at once so that you could hear it unbroken and unedited and uh, really unfiltered, which is the way we should be having these conversations, I think. If you do want more, we actually have transcripts for this. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 352. Uh, the conversation with the Luscos and Albert Tate and Nicole Martin are all there. Uh, this entire episode is there. And uh, we get a YouTube version as well. So if you want to watch it or... Because uh, sometimes, you know, you, 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 you hear and 98% uh, of the people who access this podcast do so via audio. 
However, on YouTube, we now have uh, lots of videos with thousands of views and some tens of thousands of views. Our little YouTube presence is growing. And sometimes you get a little more nuance by watching uh, people's facial expressions when they say what they say. So if you want to uh, drill down a little bit more, which I think you might, you can also find this on YouTube. All the links are in the show notes to everything at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 352. In my What I'm Thinking About segment, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this and then um, really the era that we're living in and uh, how to think about how you might respond to some of the things we covered in this episode. Next time we have Dr. Henry Cloud. One of the things I'm very concerned about is just people's emotional, spiritual, mental health in the midst of everything that's going down. And Henry Cloud and I have a long, like this is the doctor is in free conversation (laughs) that we're going to bring to you with the next episode. Here's an excerpt. Like one of my clients said, I I quoted this in Boundaries for Leaders. You know, he's saying my team's got bad morale. And I said, why is that? He said, well, I hired this guy from another company. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you know, he had been about, I kept saying, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Because I was driving him to a point, finally looks at me and goes, okay, I guess I am ridiculously in charge, right? I said, yeah, you are. So what are you going to do that's going to move the needle on all of that? And when they get that, then they start to make this little column of what I have control of and what are the key priorities, the needles that I want to move. And then from there, what are the specific brake pedals, steering wheels, activities that are going to move that needle? When they get that right, they, they change worlds and they have fun and they calm down. So that's next time on the podcast. For those of you who subscribe, you're going to get it automatically. Uh, if you are new and haven't subscribed yet, please do. This is a growing podcast. We grow, it seems, every month these days and would love to have you join our tribe. In the meantime, it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I am thinking about our character in a moment like this. This segment is brought to you by Glue. If you are curious about who is visiting your website and how to connect with them, there's a brand new technology that you can access that will help you gain insight into all of that and more. Go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's glue, G-L-O-O, and carry is spelled C-A-R-E-Y. So glueinsights.com forward slash carry. And if you really want to connect with your dispersed church, you can do that through ServeHQ's online software subscription. You can get a free, no-obligation, 14-day trial account by going to servehq.church. So what am I thinking about? Well, this is a defining conversation. As I've said already, I think five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, people are going to really pay attention to how, <laughs> how we responded to this, right? And it's really important. So I want you to realize this, and you see this, we live in a cancel culture, we live in an age where everybody's just a little bit afraid to say something, and these conversations are not easy, they're hard. Um, But a few things that I think will be really important. One is simply this, assume that what you do and say in private will be made public. Uh, One of the greatest joys I have in leadership is when your private walk is really not different than your public talk, you don't have a lot to worry about. So if you're saying one thing publicly in your preaching, in your communication, in your corporate statements about where you stand on an issue, but you're kind of joking with your friends in a way that is inconsistent with that, 
I would just assume that in the age we live in, that is going to be made public. Like if you're sending off-color texts or that kind of thing, just assume one day everybody's going to see it because the way culture is going, they probably will. And secondly, uh, as a matter of integrity, you just shouldn't live that way. You just shouldn't live that way. And, you know, I think back uh, when we think about racial justice and that kind of thing, like, you know, if, if you were opposed to racial justice in the 1960s, history does not look favorably on you. If you were silent in the Second World War as Nazism rose, his, history is not kind to that. And so even if you're like, well, I'm not going to say anything about it. Um, okay, great. But how are you going to feel about that down the road? And is that really the thing that you want to do? So what you really want to do is you want to integrate your private walk and your public talk. And, and, and I think that's really important. That's something I've been working on for years now, personally, just to make sure that there really isn't a gap. And uh, another thing that I think can really guide you in this conversation is don't say something on social you wouldn't say to someone's face. One of the reasons I really love having these conversations is, I mean, this this brings you, and I wanted to bring you it in unedited long form, is this brings you into someone else's world. And it's one thing just to have an opinion and put it out there. Listen, I'm 100% into whatever needs to be done for racial justice. So, But, you know, when you really sit down and you listen and you have a conversation with somebody, it kind of changes things. And human beings, we're kind of weird, okay, because... Think about this, right? Like your social media, you don't really see anybody. You're not really talking to anybody. Then you get like responses or reactions. But human beings behave very differently. Think about how you behave on the freeway. Okay, if you're on a highway and you're driving a 4,000 pound SUV, you will probably be more aggressive than if you were talking to someone at your front door who just rang your doorbell. Why? Because you got kind of a weapon around you, right? Think about how you behave in a store when you got a shopping cart ahead of you. When you're pushing a, a shopping cart, sociologists, psychologists say you're a little more aggressive than you would be when you don't have one. Why? Because you're kind of weaponized, right? Uh, even if you look at the history of warfare, why do you think people wear uniforms? Because it makes it easier to identify who the enemy is and to dehumanize them. So I think the same reaction is happening on social media where you're like, well, I'm just going to say what I want to say. And because it's, it's not like you're not actually in the room with another human being. And so that's why I think it's really, really important that on social, you should behave as though the person you are writing about, the issue you are talking about, the people represented by that issue are actually with you in the room. Because when you have a real conversation and you actually engage another human being, somebody made in the image of God, you are going to behave differently. And I just see so much inflammatory stuff on social and I would make sure, like, sometimes you got to take a stand, right? Like, you look at what Albert was saying, or Nicole was saying, there was some real hurt and, and stuff behind it, but it was said in the context of community, and it was real. And there have been times where I feel very strongly about an issue, and I will say something about it on social. But then I try to imagine, okay, what if all the people that I was having this conversation with were in the room? Would I say it the same way? Would I behave the same way? And if the answer is yes, then go ahead and post it. But often I think, you know, down the road... Uh, the answer is no. And then ask yourself five years from now, what will I wish I had done? This is why my wife and I this summer are talking about some of the things we can do personally in our own lives to really foster the cause of racial justice and racial equality. Um, I mean, and that's something I, I just assume has been there since the beginning of creation, but obviously it's not realized in our culture. And we're like, what can we do very specifically 
to foster racial reconciliation and racial justice. Because five years from now, we're going to wish we had done something in that area. And if you're not sure, like, you know, should I say something? Should I do something? What should I do? Just ask yourself five years from now, what will I wish I had done? That's such a clarifying question. And then finally, this is just a note for all of us in this insane season, humble your talk and accelerate your walk. Uh, There's a lot of talking, a lot of chatter these days. And I think it's really important to walk with people. And so maybe there's somebody who doesn't look like you, was born into a different circumstance than you, has a different skin color than you. What I would do is kind of walk with them. What I would do is foster those relationships. I have been texting and connecting with a lot of African-American friends over the last few months, just just trying to make sure that I really understand and I can really be at a, at, at a place where what I'm doing is uh, helpful to them. Uh, not what I think is helpful, but it's like, hey, is this like, is this like actually helpful? And, and to walk with them personally in your own life as well. So just kind of humble your talk and accelerate your walk. I think that's good discipleship advice, good integrity advice at the best of times. So that's what I'm thinking about right now. I really hope this, this helps. And uh, I'm just really grateful to Albert and Nicole, also David Kinneman, who co-hosts Church Pulse Weekly with me for these conversations. And we'll be bringing you a little bit more in this vein on this podcast this summer as well. So really, really grateful for you. Uh, thank you so much for listening. By the way, if you enjoy getting these leadership insights, I do a weekly email for about 70,000 or weekly daily email for about 70,000 leaders, which you can get at just by going to kerrynewhoff.com. Share your email. We make sure you get just a little daily dose of leadership insight and uh, would love to welcome you to that family as well. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, We are back with Henry Cloud next time. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.